Hello, this is the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I'm your host, Garrett Ashley Mullet. And today we're going to talk about the things you don't say. And uh, for some people, that's a big topic. <laughs> if you're anything like my wife, there's a lot that you don't say that goes through your mind. And even when someone presses you, you say, uh, nothing. <laughs> uh, if you're someone like me, Things you don't say might be a relatively uh, smaller topic because uh, I'm willing to talk about pretty much anything. It's just a question of how we talk about it. I, I, I do get particular about how certain things are discussed or in what perspective. You know, I have a certain perspective. I think we should be serious uh, when it's time to be serious. You know, everything shouldn't be a joke. I do have a sense of humor, but not everything is a joke. Um yeah, you know, as long as we're willing to take serious what needs to be taken serious and, uh, you know, poke fun at the things that are already taken a little bit too seriously, I'm willing to talk about most, most anything. Uh, doesn't mean I'm always comfortable talking about any given subject. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit of an embarrassing story, actually. I, uh, you know, and, and I'll, I'll have to give you some context. So in... Uh, oil field lingo, uh, and I'm sure it's not just oil field lingo. I'm sure it, you know, that, that, that's just where I've picked it up. That's where I'm familiar with it from. Uh, there is, uh, you know, a certain kind of uh, fitting that'll go between uh, pipes or components or, or what have you, and it's basically like a straight pipe. And it's threaded on both sides. And then you'll, you know, I mean, for instance, you might put a valve on one end of it. You might put a T on the other end. You might put, uh, you know, some kind of a, uh, an elbow or a cross or, or whatever. But that's, I mean, that's how you put stuff together is you, you know, you, you have it, it comes in parts and then you, you know, you build what it is that you need, where you need the, the piping to go where you need it to take uh, your oil, your gas, your water, <clears throat> whatever it is that you're trying to, to transport around location safely in a contained fashion. And uh, so anyway, uh, in my line of work as an automation technician, we don't just install the electronic devices. We also will install the uh, piping that will uh, support them or contain them or what have you. So we do a little bit of uh, plumbing, oil field plumbing, if you will. And sometimes, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's almost a little bit of a, a roustabouting, uh, more technical roustabouting. And roustabout is, is kind of your oil field construction worker, uh, just for those that are, are a little bit unfamiliar with the lingo. But anyway, uh, here last week, we were doing a, a new construction, trying to put together uh, some devices and uh, so we have some pneumatic control valves and then we've got to run uh, stainless steel tubing from an air compressor to these control valves and then the control valves will operate uh, they'll either open or close or uh, you know, throttle the flow based on uh, solenoids and so these solenoids they, they basically receive an electrical signal which will then tell them to either supply air or cut off the supply of air and then these control valves they'll respond to either the presence or absence of air uh etc and so 
you know, we were missing some parts. We needed to get some, uh, two of my associates, JR and TC, they were both uh, a little bit more experienced with, uh, putting in the, 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 the tubing. There's a little bit of a knack to measuring and cutting and bending tubing. And so I figured, well, they've got a little bit more experience with that. I'll let them do that. I can run for parts to our local, uh, shop supplier distributor. Apex Remington. And so, you know, I put together a list of what it is that I needed to get. And uh, I was just hoping in going in there that I wouldn't need to get uh, what they call nipples. And, and nipples is a, is that, that is the term for <clears throat> a straight piece of pipe that's threaded on both ends uh, and it will go between other components. And, uh, and, and a little bit of the backstory on that is, you know, I typically have to go in and get parts at various places all over Western North Dakota, depending on where we're working or, you know, what place has the, the parts that we need. Sydney, Montana also has uh, Richland pipe. I'm sorry, Richland pump supply and a couple other shops that, you know, we can go in and get some, some pipe stuff, components, fittings, et cetera. And, uh, and, you know, so nipples, that's, that's a, common term but in most of these shops pretty much all of them except uh, i think border states in williston uh, i'm always interacting with men right and there's a lot more men it seems like that work in oil field uh, oil and gas than there are women and so i'm i'm usually you know telling uh, a man hey here's the list of parts that i need even at apex remington i do that uh, but you know, I had just told a little bit of an embarrassing story. I didn't have to tell an embarrassing story to my compatriots, uh, but it involved having to go into a store here recently. And uh, the guy that usually helps me out was on the phone with insurance or something. And so one of the office gals, a young office gal, probably around my age, uh, was helping me get all the parts that I needed. And I, I tell you what, I know it's the term for it, uh, and and I probably should not have been, but I I turned uh, a bright shade of red when I had to tell her that I one of the one of the things that I needed to get uh, was nipples, and that just embarrassed me. Um, but all <laughs> all of that is to say, uh, you know, sometimes you know, we're, we're uncomfortable talking about a topic, not because the topic is inappropriate. Uh, sometimes, it, you know, it's just us being uh, shy or, uh, you know, maybe it's the, the audience, you know, talking about a certain topic with one person, you'd feel totally comfortable talking about uh, that same topic with another person. And, and you feel very self-conscious suddenly because you hope that they're not going to misunderstand you. And, <laughs> Take offense, <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's there's two passages uh, from the scriptures that came to mind this morning as I was considering this topic, and I was kind of assessing my social media and what it is that I post, and, uh, what content I publish, and what am I putting out there, and what is the purpose of that? Why why do I publish the content that I do? Why am I recording this podcast? Why am I saying 
uh, what I'm saying, why do I share the memes and the videos and the photos and the status updates and, and all the rest? Why do I why do I do any of that? What is the purpose of it? What am I getting at? And do I sometimes overshare? Do I say things that I maybe should not say that would be you know better left unsaid? And it all reminds me of a, a certain proverb, Proverbs 17, uh, verses 27 to 28. And uh, I suppose technically maybe these are two separate proverbs, but they're back to back. And I think they're related. So anyway, uh, it says in Proverbs 17, 27 to 28, whoever restrains his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. And so now, you know, what does that mean? You know, my, my mother used to tell me uh, that second part, especially even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. I believe that was uh, a proverb that Abraham Lincoln, President Lincoln, uh, was fond of quoting. And sometimes it's misattributed to him. People think that he's the one that said that originally, that he was actually quoting this proverb. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. Uh, you know, but I, I think my mom, uh, she would quote this to me as a, a biblical way of saying, uh, shut up, <laughs> shut, shut your mouth. <laughs> you, <laughs> you, you need to stop talking right now. Uh, you know, I, I would note uh, the second part of this, you know, that verse 28, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. And there, sometimes there can be wisdom in being considered wise, even uh, if you're not. And I think about playing poker. And uh, for anybody who has objections to gambling and uh, playing cards and things like that, um, I don't know, see me after class. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm willing to hear your arguments. I haven't yet uh, heard a persuasive argument uh, that the Bible explicitly prohibits gambling uh, or playing cards. If you have a particular conviction about that, I would guess that it's probably based on tradition and emotions. Uh, it's something someone outside of the Bible told you. But uh, anyway, you know, I think about like poker where... You know, you have, uh, you know, a hand of cards that's been dealt to you and your uh, opponents also. And you're trying to gauge based on the cards you've got in your hand, based on the cards that are on the table, and based on how other people at the table with their own cards are uh, acting, how they bid, body language, what they say, facial expressions, all that kind of stuff you're trying to gauge. How good is their hand, actually? And as a matter of course, you bid or don't based on not only your cards, but also their cards. You know, do you think you've got a better hand than they do? Do they seem pretty confident? Whatever. And so there's a lot of bluffing that goes on in poker. And if you're really good at bluffing, you don't have to have uh, good cards necessarily. It really does help. Uh, but you know, if the other person, if they're not willing to call your bluff because you pull a, a convincing enough bluff, you don't always have to have the best card. Sometimes you can, uh, you can, you can just bluff your way through. And so also with life, sometimes, you know, knowing when to stop talking and, uh, to bluff, if you will, 
can be advantageous. Now, that opens up a whole other subject of, you know, when is uh, bluffing, when is being selective in what truth you choose to share about yourself, about a situation, etc. Uh, when is that being wise and when is that being dishonest and deceptive? Uh, that that is a big topic. Uh, and I think it's I think it's related to this one. Uh, there's another passage uh, from Job 32, 15 to 22. Uh, and this is a, a quote from Elihu or Elihu, I guess, depending on how you, you choose to pronounce it. I've, I've read a number of biographies. I, I can't even tell you how many, maybe five or six, actually, biographies of uh, Teddy Roosevelt. And uh, there's a, a guy that uh, shows up repeatedly. I think it's in the biographies of Teddy Roosevelt. might have been books about Lincoln. Anyways, um, you know, American history, late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, a politician by the name of Elihu Root. And that's how, that's how his name is always said, pronounced by the uh, narrators of these books. So I don't know if that's the, more the traditional pronunciation. Uh, Elihu uh, my second-born son, we named him uh, after this character from Job, this man, young man from Job. And uh, we pronounce his name Elihu. Uh, I guess if, if somebody wants to correct me either way, give me uh, confidence which way that's supposed to be pronounced, uh, please, I, I welcome it. But in the meantime, we, we call him Elihu. Even if you do correct me, we're going to probably continue calling him Elihu because it would be weird to change now. Uh, but anyway, Elihu, <clears throat> he says, They are dismayed. They answer no more. They have not a word to say. And shall I wait because they do not speak, because they stand there and answer no more? I will answer with my share. I also will declare my opinion, for I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. And I'll tell you, uh, this, this passage from Job, uh, and, and really everything that... Uh, Elihu says in the book of Job, uh, I just, I love it. It resonates with me on a deep level. And I will note, uh, as with the pronunciation of his name, if someone has a different interpretation of, uh, you know, how uh, Elihu conducts himself, whether that is praiseworthy or uh, foolish, or whether that is, you know, uh, it is treated with silence because it doesn't register, it doesn't move the, the needle. Uh, that is not the way that I read it. I read it as Job and his friends uh, going back and forth for days and days and days. Uh, you know, Satan makes a wager with God and says, if, if you take away these blessings that Job has, he's going to curse you to your face. He's only faithful to you because you do good things for him and you protect him. If you removed that, 
uh, he wouldn't have anything to do with you. He would curse you. And so God says, you're on. It's a wager uh, or what have you. And uh, he says, you know, just don't take his life. You can take everything else. You just can't take his life. So all this bad stuff happens to Job and his friends. Uh, they listen and they are there to spend time with him. And they seem like they're really sympathetic for a good long while. They obviously uh, are disappointed or sad uh, to see all of what's happened to Job. So they're trying to make sense of it, right? Uh, you know, and that's that's typically the way that I am if a friend is hurting. Uh, my inclination is not to say, I feel your pain. My inclination is not just to give them a hug. I'm really not a, I'm not a big hug person. I try to get over that because I realize other people sometimes need hugs, even if I don't feel like giving them. But, um, you know, I, I am a give advice person. If I care about your problem and I uh, am sorry to see you hurting and, uh, and if I want to help, I, I try to give advice and try to explain the situation because for, that's, that's what works for me. When I uh, don't know what to do and I don't understand, that's when I'm the most frustrated and that's when it hurts the most. If I can at least understand and feel like I'm beginning to wrap my mind around what's happening, that helps immeasurably. So then I try to do that to other people. I'm doing unto others as I would have them do unto me, uh, all that. But, uh, you know, these friends of, of Job's, they, in trying to help him wrap his mind around what's happened, uh, they are not entirely helpful because they don't have their minds around what is happening. And they presume uh, that good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, bad things happening to Job means that he must have done messed up. And so he should just uh, admit it already and uh, repent. And if you would just repent and stop being so stiff-necked, all this bad stuff could go away. Job, we care about you. You, you are being so proud and so stiff-necked. Why, why are you this way? Can't you just admit that you made a mistake and, and this God will stop if you just confess and repent and stop doing whatever bad thing you're doing, Job? And Job isn't having it. <laughs> uh, he, he does not cave into this pressure. Uh, he obviously, I mean, on top of all of his other pains, uh, all of his other stresses and and questions of why God, why, uh, this is just salt in the wound. Uh, you know, but he goes back and forth and back and forth with his friends. And they're, they're not helpful. And, you know, at the very end of it, uh, you know, before God comes on the scene, uh, Elihu, who's this young man who's been kind of sitting off on the sidelines, watching all of this unfold. He's also been there and listening to Job and listening to Job's friends. And he, he says at one point that he didn't want to speak out of turn because he figured they were older. And so they should know he didn't, you know, why would he have the answers if, if, uh, they didn't. And so he was going to let them speak because he, he assumed respectfully that, that age should have wisdom and that they would know. And then when he listened and realized, he, he realized that they did not know, actually, <laughs> they were full of crap <laughs> to, to put the Garrett version on it. He says, well, no, I got, I got to say something here. 
guys. I I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. He's been listening for days at this point. He's not just some young person who's jumping into something he knows nothing about, speaking out of turn. Uh, Elihu is really the only character, I will note, at the end of Job, uh, the only character who comes out unscathed. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong. I've studied it. I've read it. I've thought about this. But maybe I missed something, notwithstanding. He comes out of it uh, unscathed. He does not get rebuked the way that the rest of them do. Uh, you know, Job, his his rebuke from God is, you know, where were you when I created everything? I forgot. Uh, did, did I ask you for advice on how to put the universe together? You see those stars in the sky when I put them in their places? And, and who are you? to question me and demand an answer, you know, but who are you? And, and I think God, <clears throat> I think God teases uh, Job. I really do. I, th- I think he, uh, he says all of this in, in a more compassionate way than uh, some people understand or realize. Um, I, I think this is really the, the most loving response God can give Job is to ask, you know, I'm sorry, <laughs> but were you there when I created everything? I mean, do you <laughs> do you have more wisdom than I that you're going to advise me on what is is good and true and proper? Uh, you know, that's the most loving thing that God can possibly respond to Job in, and because it it reframes the whole situation, the whole relationship between God and man, and uh, I think. Uh, it actually succeeds. God succeeds where Job's friends have clearly failed in helping him to wrap his mind around what's going on, what the purpose of his life is, and what his relationship to God is, uh, who God is. Uh, you know, but but Elihu, you know, he's not among the friends that uh, God instructs Job to pray for for forgiveness. I don't believe. I believe Elihu is actually testifying to the truth. Uh, in any event, you know, here he is, he's speaking, and he he feels compelled to speak and to represent God well because God is not being represented well. You know, the, the focus is on this uh, misunderstanding uh, either on Job's part or on his friend's part of who God is. And uh, so anyway, that's... That's why uh, my son is named Elihu, because here he is. He's this young man, and yet he has the boldness and the courage and the moral clarity uh, to articulate who God actually is and uh, to not be so deferential, so respectful of his elders that even as they're misrepresenting God, uh, he's going to respect his elders more than he uh, respects God. Right. And so, as you know, as Solomon writes, wise old King Solomon, as he writes in Ecclesiastes, there is a time to be silent, but there's also a time to speak. And how we decide when one and when the other uh, is critically important to the direction that we go 
in life. Uh, you know, someone might say, you know, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Uh, how you speak, what you choose to say, what you choose not to say. Uh, I can speak from personal experience. Uh, it is decided to a very great extent by when you choose to speak and when you choose to be silent and what you choose to say when you choose to speak. And sometimes the things that we need to say, uh, the things that are true and that are relevant, uh, they nevertheless hurt. You know, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And sometimes your friends don't uh, want to hear it. They don't appreciate honesty uh, because it does hurt. Uh, you know, I, I've been reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship. I also started reading uh, a book that was recommended by uh, someone I go to church with. He and his wife have just recently read it, really liked it. I think they're on their way through the book a second time because there was a lot to process first time through. But it's about designing your life. And so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going back and forth between Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the cost of discipleship, knowing how that story ends up for him in this book about designing your life written by two Stanford professors of design and uh, I will note a, a very stark contrast in the language, the tone of uh, these two books. Uh, in the one case, you know, I, I don't know if it's partly a consequence of being an older book. I mean, it's from 100 years ago, the one by Bonhoeffer. Uh, I don't know if it's partly a consequence of him being German uh, and it being translated into English. I don't know if it's that uh, he was clergy. I don't know if it was that he was Lutheran, uh, but a very different book. Uh, it definitely paints my perception of the whole thing, knowing the end from the beginning of the book. I know what happens to Bonhoeffer. I know that he dies in a concentration camp. I know that he's part of a plot to assassinate Hitler. I know uh, about his family history, even before the book, uh, how his grandmother was uh, very critical of the Prussian model of public education. Uh, he and his siblings, they were not, uh, they were not raised in a home that was ambiguous about the need for a Christian education or the proper limits of the state's authority over children, over families, over morality, over right and wrong. Uh, that was a family uh, characteristic that the Bonhoeffers were critical of, of public education because they saw it, rightly so, it should be noted, they saw Prussian public education as a system designed to make slaves, and to quote uh, one of the, the men who uh, assessed and analyzed the Prussian model when it was being uh, uh considered for the model that American public education would be based on. And I quote, you know, is a system designed to make slaves out of 99 in 100 of its charges. I don't quote, I paraphrase. That's, that's a very, it's a close paraphrase. I know. Uh, but 
you know, the, the Bonhoeffers, they saw that rightly. They did not want their children to become slaves to the state, to become secular, to become godless, to become uh, mindless. They wanted their children to have an actual genuine education, to have minds of their own, to be able to make moral uh, judgments, you know, to to rightly perceive what was right and wrong based on the scriptures, based on God's word, based on uh, the universal truth of the Bible, not based on the dictates and whims of a man uh, ruling a country like a Frederick the Great, like Adolf Hitler. And I think it was for this very reason that Bonhoeffer was able to have the courage to preach sermons, uh, to write books that repudiated the cheap grace of Nazi Germany, uh, that repudiated the, the apostasy of the Nazis. Uh, it ultimately cost him his life, but you know, whoever would lose their life for Christ's sake uh, shall have eternal life, you know, will not die. That is the promise. That is the gospel. Uh, the cost of discipleship is very high. You know, I was, I was struggling a little bit with the the difference, the contrast between the tone of this Designing Your Life book yesterday as I was listening to it and uh, The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And on the one hand, you know, Bonhoeffer, uh, you know, Jesus is the center of everything in that book. Uh, you know, you... You make every decision in life on the presumption that you are a disciple of Christ, not just that you have fire insurance, but that you are following after Christ. The kingdom of heaven is not yours to inherit unless you are willing to uh, believe in Jesus in such a way that you follow after him and you obey the commands. You know, grace is there to pay the penalty that you could not pay for past sins, but you are turning away from those past sins. When you come to Christ, uh, you do not continue on as you were before and you don't operate on a godless premise. You know, reading this designing your life, I think one of the authors uh, sounds like he's a Christian. I think he talks a little bit about faith, about your soul, about, uh, you know, the, the, impact that a, a men's group has had on his spiritual life and therefore his happiness. And yeah, you know, as, as uh, I'm, I'm listening to the book, I, I don't hear Christ mentioned once, you know, even by the, the one author who is a Christian. And that isn't to say at all that the book is worthless. That isn't to say that uh, there's, there's no, uh, good that can come from reading the book or taking seriously some of what it says. I would note also, you know, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't just say Jesus, Jesus, Jesus all over the place. There is a place for practical wisdom and just living life in a wise way that is part of how we honor God. You know, whatever, whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might as to the Lord. You know, uh, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, much of the rest of the Bible, uh, it does concern itself with earthly matters because uh, you know how we how we live here echoes in eternity. What we do here echoes in eternity. Uh, how we live, uh, whether wisely or foolishly, 
it does reflect on the gospel. It reflects on uh, Jesus. It reflects on God. And not only that, but but God didn't give us minds. He didn't give us the ability to reason and to think things through just so we could throw our hands up and uh, be reckless and be foolish. That's not what, that, that, that doesn't please God. Uh, it's not responsible. It's not the best way to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. It's not the best way to love our neighbor as ourself. Uh, we should be wise. And so this designing your life, I, I, I was talking about it with my wife after uh, having listened to a couple chapters of it and listening to some more of Bonhoeffer yesterday. And you know, it occurred to me as I was talking, as I was explaining it, trying to explain it to her, that uh, you know, I suppose as you're designing your life, you know, if you if you're putting Christ at the center and that's how you're designing your life, and then you you've you've had somebody come along and they've given you a practical framework, a very simple, straightforward uh, method of of orienting your priorities around what you want most. And then you make the conscious choice that what I want most is to come to the end of the road and have Jesus say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You know, not depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you, but well done, my good and faithful servant. If that is the core thing that you want, and then you, you orient your life around that, uh, I think that is a good thing. And so actually, there's a, a you know, the, the, the gentleman, uh, he's a friend of mine, uh, elder at our church, Buck, <clears throat> who recommended this book. It's actually, one of the things that really intrigued me about listening to it is that he said, you know, it's not written from an explicitly Christian perspective. Uh, and yet, what he wants to do is he wants to kind of go through and, uh, rewrite, if you will, or adapt, if you will, uh, everything in that book to uh, the Christian uh, life. You know, if, if we were to turn this into a program for living a Christian life, uh, you know, what would that look like? And uh, so I'm very intrigued to see what he comes up with. I think it's a really, really cool idea. Uh, he's a smart guy. And uh, I, I can tell too. I mean, he he does construction. He designs and builds houses. Uh, does really good work. And uh, and he, I'm sure he was attracted to uh, this book, in part because you know it's, it's about design, right? So you, he's a designer of houses or helps design houses. And uh, you know the, the the authors of this book are designers. That's what they do for a living, and they teach design. And uh, so I, I think it's cool. Uh, yeah, it might be a little bit of a head scratcher on the front end, but you know what? That's that, that, that's okay. You know, that's that's actually a good thing. Uh, you know, as uh, the, the saying that gets quoted so often, it becomes cliche, but it's still good if you really think about it. Try and look past the cliche. You know, be the change you want to see in, in the world. Uh, you know, I want others to look past the head scratching, the initial reservations, to actually think about things more than just the first impression. And so also, uh, I must behave that way if I want others to, or else I'm a hypocrite. Uh, and if I'm not willing to, to do that myself, then uh, I quickly fall into 
the uh, you know wanting to pull specks out of others' eyes, even as I have a plank in my own, and I I don't want that. I'd like to read a few quotes for you that relate to uh, the topic of speech speaking, uh, especially uh, as I'm thinking about it in the terms that I'm thinking about it. Uh, let's say with regards to that proverb, you know, even a fool is esteemed wise when uh, he is silent. And uh, so I think of a quote from Aristotle. Uh, it is, and I quote, there's only one way to avoid criticism. Do nothing, say nothing, and be nothing. Uh, and this is important to me because uh, I've had a, a great deal of criticism uh, in life. And uh, I think it's somewhat abated, as far as I know, at least uh, as the years have gone on, as uh, I've been able to prove myself. Uh, if I was doing things that not everybody was doing, or if I was saying things that... Uh, most nobody else was willing to say, uh, you know, initially, especially in my early adulthood, my, my early 20s, late teens, uh, I had a number of people that just thought either A, I was crazy, uh, B, I was a jerk. Uh, I, th I think that was pretty much it. I, I, people thought I was either crazy or a jerk, uh, but they didn't, did not think that I was correct either in saying and doing the things that I was doing uh, or uh, yeah, they, they just didn't. Uh, but, you know, while I might have been very much discouraged early on, become very anxious about uh, people being critical as I get older, you know, for one thing, I realize more and more that, you know, the people that have been critical, it's like, you know, you move, you change jobs, you, you do something different. Those people, you know, even some of the people that you liked, uh, you know, not to mention the people that you really didn't care for to begin with. It's like, why did I ever even care that that person was being critical? I don't put any stock in their opinion. Uh, they have shown zero interest in my life uh, before that, since that. Uh, you know, you realize, I think as you get older, uh, what container what box to put other people's criticism in generally speaking uh, it can get more difficult as you let people get close to you uh, if they are critical I mean you think about Job's three friends who are telling him you, you need to repent you messed up you obviously must have done something wrong and you're now you're just being stiff-necked about it uh, you should be owning up to it repenting and then God will forgive you uh, you know that criticism was uh, probably all the more hurtful because it wasn't just from random strangers. It was from friends. It was from people that Job expected to know him deeply and intimately, probably had known them for years, uh, maybe for his whole life, and he expected they would have his back. And then, you know, in with their worldview being what it was, their view of God, their theology being what it was, uh, they just automatically... Uh, assumed, even if, even in the absence of evidence of any direct uh, observation that, that Job had messed up, he had done something foolish, said something sinful, thought something sin, you know, they, in the absence of any other evidence, they just looked at the bad stuff that was happening and concluded, well, that must be the evidence, right? Uh, you know, so they they became critical 
Uh, you know, Aristotle says there's only one way to avoid criticism. That is to do nothing, say nothing, and be nothing. Uh, is that worth it? You, you think about how anxious we get over criticism. Is it worth being nothing in order to uh, just to, to, to save ourselves from other people disliking, uh, disagreeing with, critiquing what it is that we're doing? I don't think so. I really don't. Uh, you know, it might be useful to remember a Mark Twain quote: "A few fly bites cannot stop a spirited horse." Uh, and the fly bites in this case would be uh, criticism from small-minded people. Uh, you know, it's one thing if God Himself tells you, if He shows up at the end of uh, your book, and He says, "I'm sorry, where were you when I created the universe?" That's one thing. Okay, that's not a fly bite. That's a <laughs> <laughs> that is a supreme smackdown if uh, he chooses to uh, rebuke you. Uh, you know, some some uh, middle-aged lady who lives up the street who you've never had a meaningful conversation with in your life uh, saying that you're not going to amount to anything unless you do X, Y, or Z, that's a fly bite. Uh, it doesn't mean, you know, be a jerk to her. But uh, you keep it in perspective. If she's critical and she doesn't like what you're doing, if she thinks that uh, you should knock it off or whatever, keep that in perspective. Uh, you know, there's a, another quote. Uh, you know, it's from Plato, so I'm, I'm sticking with these Greek philosophers. He says, "Wise men talk because they have something to say. Fools because they have to say something." And I think there's a certain point at which, you know, if if we are Elihu and we're saying, I'm just going to burst unless I say something. Uh, but the stuff that we have to say is idiotic. Uh, you know, that's foolish. That's that's ridiculous. Um, you know, it, it matters a great deal what it is that we feel like uh, we must say. Uh, and we should be considering it. We should be pondering before we say it, not out of fear that somebody's going to criticize, but out of a concern for whether what we have to say is true. Is it true? Uh, you know, I like uh, something that Jordan Peterson says in his 12 Simple Rules for Life, uh, where he says, if you don't know what to do, start with just telling the truth, right? You know, and as you tell the truth, even if it hurts, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it upsets people, even if it upsets you, as you tell the truth, maybe a solution to your problem will present itself. Even as you just are willing to say it out loud, making the decision even just to say out loud what the truth is, all of a sudden you free that truth up to factor into your decision making and what possible options you might have in front of you to respond to a situation, respond to a conflict, respond to a problem, what have you. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it isn't just, you, know, you say truths, things that are factual that are irrelevant, right? That's, I think, what Plato is getting at. Even if you're saying things that are facts, they have nothing to do with the situation at hand. They're not timely. They're not relevant, uh, you know. It would be foolish to just make noise all the time just because you feel compelled to. 
so it's important that you know as Solomon writes, you know, there's a time to speak, there's a time to, to keep silent. We need to know how to do both. Any good car has uh, a brake pedal and a gas pedal, and uh, you're you're either not going anywhere without the one, uh, or else it's going to be a one-way trip without the other. Uh, I think also too, you know, as we look at the life of Jesus, you know, we don't see that he uh, waxed eloquent all the time. Sometimes he was very succinct and he knew when uh, only just a little bit of truth was enough. Just a dab would do you. Uh, there's other times uh, where he is extremely blunt. Uh, blunt like uh, I wish so much we would be in the church when it comes to uh What's, what's really true? What's relevant? Being authentic, being honest, being real about how we really feel, being real about what, I mean, what is true. I mean, you know, just not, not denying things just because it's going to upset somebody, because uh, they're offended, because they're going to be upset, because they're going to be critical, because they're going to leave, because they're going to take their tithe with them, because they're not going to come to church again, because they're going to, gossip they're gonna you know in the church we need to be about the truth absolutely it is a gospel issue and christ is our example and we can't invalidate him being the example by saying well he was jesus well he was god well he was trying to get himself crucified so what i mean, so, I mean that's as bonhoeffer says I, i'm inclined to agree with him you know the cost of discipleship is uh, we are imitating Christ. We are following after Christ. And that means being prepared to suffer. You know, Peter was crucified too. Uh, was that a mistake because he was not the son of God? Was that uh, him being presumptuous? To his credit, he asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel like he was worthy of being crucified right side up the way that Jesus was. You know, maybe that's the way that we get around that is, uh, you know, as long as we're willing to suffer in a way that Jesus wasn't suffering, uh, but yet I think that's that's flipping the whole thing on its head. You know, that that's part of the compelling uh, nature of what Jesus did, what what God the Father did in sending the Son. Uh, we do not have a high priest who is unsympathetic. He was tempted in all ways as we are, yet was without sin. Uh, part of the point of Christ coming to be our example was so that. We could take his word for it that he could relate, and that he understood what we're going through, not so that we could either turn him into something that's not human, uh, not so that we could find a million excuses from a million different directions on why we don't have to imitate him, we don't have to follow him, we don't have to uh, do what he actually said. It's another thing Bonhoeffer says, you know, all this cheap grace business, uh, it is about excuse making. You know, Jesus gives a hard command here, and then we find a way that we can accept ourselves, exempt ourselves from that command by qualifying it to death. Uh, and then before you know it, uh, not, a th not a lick of what he said is actually authoritative. We've, we've exempted ourselves left and right. You know, he, he puts it one way. I think it, it's really compelling. Uh, you know, imagine if you told your children – Hey guys, go to bed. And then they said, "Well, 
when he says go to bed, what he really means is he wants me to be healthy and happy. And right now, I feel like I would be healthier and happier if I would get up and not go to bed. Yet, I'm going to go outside and play because my dad really wants me to be healthy and happy. That's the thing he wants most. When he said go to bed right now, he didn't actually mean go to bed right now. He meant if I wanted to, I could. It's an option, but grace, grace, grace. You know, and Bonhoeffer rightly, and I can attest to this as a, as a father, <laughs> uh, he says, you know, you try that as a child, and what you get is discipline. You get a spanking. You get uh, punishment, and rightly so, because you're being disobedient. Uh, so also with Jesus, if we say, you know, hey, yeah, that's the example he set. He was very honest. He was very blunt. He was very direct. Uh, he called spades spades. Uh, he was not so meek and mild that he tiptoed through the tulips. Uh, he said what needed to be said when it needed to be said. Sometimes that was uh, a little dab will do you. And sometimes it was a, a truckload of truth. And, uh, and so also, you know, in our day and age, human nature has not changed since the days of Jesus. It is not the case that uh, that was relevant back then and it is no longer relevant. It is not the case that that was needed back then and it is not needed now. Uh, it is the case that uh, we as Christians have uh, a charge to preach the gospel in season and out of season. Uh, we have the uh, great honor of representing Christ. And if we're ashamed of Christ, for ashamed of the way that he acted, the way he conducted himself, the way he talked to people, the way that he spoke, the things that he said. If we're ashamed of the way that people got upset with him to where then we're not willing to live that way. If people get upset with us, we take that automatically as a, as a proof. We must have messed up. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, friendship with the world is enmity with God. That's, that's biblical. You know, am I now trying to serve men or please men? If I was, I would no longer be a servant of Christ. That's what Paul writes. You know, he rebukes Peter for giving in to the Judaizers, for appeasing them, for, for sacrificing truth for the sake of expedience, for the sake of uh, you know, keeping the peace with the fussy uh, part of the congregation, with the particular ones, with the ones that like to have everything done their way all the time, and they think that they can just be critical. And, and everybody else has to say how high whenever they say jump. You know, Paul doesn't have any patience for that, in part because Paul, you know, as he writes, he, as is the reason why he writes it, is to remind them of these things, make it clear. You know, if anybody was going to brag about being righteous according to the law, it would be Paul. If anybody was going to have a, a, a leg to stand on in saying they were justified by the law, it would be him. You know, he was a Jew's Jew. He followed all the rules. He uh, studied under uh, Gamaliel, the uh, preeminent religious teacher, religious uh, scholar, leader, what have you, of his day. Uh, you know, he, Paul had more reason to boast than the Judaizers did, and yet did not boast in those things. He said his righteousness was just filthy rags. He rebuked them. 
Uh, Galatians 5.12, one of the best verses in the whole book. Uh, I would that those who are bothering you about circumcision would just go the whole way and cut themselves off. Uh, depending on your translation, uh, it says emasculate themselves, castrate themselves. Uh, you know, Paul does not mince words. He, he is not about tiptoeing through the tulips. He is very blunt about it. Uh, you know, there's, there's a, a, an instance at one point where Simon the sorcerer uh, tries to buy this Holy Spirit magic because that's what he does. He, he does magic. He makes money. He, he gets influence. He gets respect uh, because he's able to do magic tricks. Uh, probably by uh, the, the spiritual power which God gave to fallen uh, angels before they fell. Uh, he's able to tap into that. And so he wants some of this Holy Spirit power that he sees the apostles uh, displaying. That's accompanying the gospel as the gospel is being preached. And he tries to buy it. He says, hey, how much money do I need to pay you to, to learn these tricks? I want, I want you to teach me how to do this. Give me this Holy Spirit power. And, uh, you know, go look it up. Go look up Simon the Sorcerer. Uh, they basically, <laughs> they basically tell him to go to hell. <laughs> I, I, I'm paraphrasing, but that is the sentiment. Uh, you know, he, what he's doing is damnable and they're very blunt about it. You know, when, when, uh, the apostles are, are called, uh, to account for why is it that they continue preaching the name of Jesus, even when they have been clearly forbidden from doing so by the religious leaders, uh, their answer is we must obey God rather than men. And uh, so I think uh, with this topic of, you know, when it is that we should speak, when it is that we should be silent, uh, taming the tongue, all of that kind of stuff, you know, we do well to remember, you know, James, uh, the book of James, it, it, it makes an analogy, several different analogies. It talks about the, the tongue being a spark that sets a whole blaze, a whole whole forest on fire, uh, it can set the whole body on fire. Uh you know, it talks about uh, being the rudder of a ship. You can steer the ship, the whole body, the whole person can be steered around by uh, the words that they say. Um, but it, it also talks about, you know, a, a bridle, a bit in the mouths. And you think about, you know, the, the purpose uh, of those analogies is not to say that the tongue has no use. Uh, it would be a, a serious mistake to conclude that just because there's a danger there, that that means God wants us to not speak. And just because we need to watch our mouths, that means that the best thing to do is just to stop talking, to not speak, uh, or to stop talking when people get upset. That's not biblical. Uh, if that is your presumption, you have a faulty view of the Bible. You have a faulty view of God. You have a faulty view of what God has called you to in life. And uh, you need to th rethink that. Meditate on the scriptures. Start reading them. You uh, Have no fear of man who can only kill the body and then has nothing more they can do to you. you know, and, and, and what is it but fly bites? If somebody is criticizing you, so what if they criticize you? So what? So 
what? I, I love that Dennis Prager. Uh, I watched a little video he had on uh, Facebook. It was kind of a little fireside chat. And he, he said that, you know, if you want to make your life, just, you know, far less complicated uh, in a very quick fashion, uh, learn to say, so what? You know, that, that is a legitimate response to people uh, when they're talking nonsense. So what? You know, make them explain. You know, why should that be uh, the barrier to me doing or saying what I am doing and saying? Make them explain themselves. But with that, uh, I conclude this discussion of uh, when to speak, when not to speak. Uh, if you're listening and you think I missed something or misunderstood something or misrepresented something, please, by all means, uh, find me on social media. Message me wherever you can find me. Uh, let's talk about it. You can email me also, garrettmullet at gmail.com. That's G-A-R-R-E-T-T-M-U-L-L-E-T at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. God bless. <laughs>